0: And I hope that you have a Bible with you. And if you do, I'd love for you to open up with with me to Luke chapter 23. We'll read from the end of that chapter, beginning around verse number um, 30, uh, 32 in just a little bit. I just want to say a word about, um, I'm thankful for a lot today. Um, so I'm a little bit uh, overwhelmed. Uh, maybe you've had those days where you're overwhelmed with all that God has done and what you get to be a part of. But I got to say this. Um, Week after week, the local church continues to save my life from something much worse and from a lifestyle and a pathway that would be so destructive. Uh, The local church for years and years and years now has saved me, has rescued me from a life that would be otherwise wasted. And I'm capable of a lot of waste and a lot of recklessness but because it brings me together It saves me and it rescues me because it brings me together with all of you. Uh, And even if you're just visiting with us today, if you call another church your home, um, I'm still referring to you because when I gather with all of you and when we gather alongside our brother and sister churches around the world, uh, I'm reminded and we're all reminded uh, that this isn't just my song. This isn't just my story. This isn't just our individual stories I'm reminded by all of you coming alongside of me that together we are welcomed into joining the family of God that Christ is the cornerstone that gives shape and form to the whole church and he is on the foundation that welcomes us and makes room for everybody to step onto and find security and stability redemption and salvation and there is no one else and there is nothing else that offers us that kind of hope in this world you know, if not for the church, I may convince myself or I may be convinced by the world that my little siloed off world is most important and that you are my competitors, that you are my stumbling blocks, that you're in my way of where I want to be and where I want to, to, to and what I want to do. But because the local church brings me together alongside of you. Because the church brings us onto a joint foundation, because Jesus is the cornerstone who all of us call our foundation in our solid rock, because of the church, I realize that I should not, because I'm so tempted to, I realize that I should not get so caught up in I, my, and me. The church reminds me that I should pay more attention to us, our, and we. Because the church in God's kingdom is about us. It is about our. It is about we. You know, isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Isn't that how he taught us to understand God? Not just my Father, but what did he say in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Which are in heaven that every time we pray individually, we're supposed to call upon a God who is not just our father or not just my father, but he's our father. He is the God of many children. You know, God has other kids besides just me. That's hard for me to remember sometimes because I can get pretty focused on me. That God has other kids. He loves us all and he wants us to love each other. And that's why that's the central message of the Bible. Also, one of the most unnoticed phrases in the New Testament, maybe you've never paid attention to this, but maybe you will from now on. One of the most unnoticed phrases repeated dozens of times in the New Testament is this phrase, let us. It is mentioned all throughout the gospels, all throughout the epistles of Paul, Peter and James. And it reminds us that our journey is collective. Our journey is not just about us individually, our journey, is a joint one. Romans 14, for example, the apostle Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He was always calling for us. And the Bible calls for us to consider one another, not just what's good for me, but what is benefiting and edifying to each other. Let us stir one another to good works. Let us hold fast together. Let us keep a step together. Let us love one another. And of course, if you read the epistles in the New Testament uh, addressing the churches, Peter, Paul, James, and John, they rarely refer to me, but they are constantly referring to we. You know, even the confessions in the Bible that the apostles teach us, uh, they carry a communal resolve, not just individual ones. We hear them say things like, we must obey God. We labor together. We ought to, and we serve God in his kingdom. Many of the promises that are written from the perspective uh, of we know, not I know. So that we confess them and repeat them. We aren't just reminded of what God has said to us individually. We are reminded of what God is saying to us all. Meaning to draw us together and cause us to interpret the promises of God on a communal basis. We know, not just I know. Romans twelve four and five, the apostle Paul says this famously, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body, individually members of one another in Christ. We are the body of Christ. So the church is all about we and us and our. We share this house today. We sang earlier about who we are in Christ and we are God's children Just as we share this house today, do you know, do you know that we'll one day share a house in heaven? You know, we often talk about how we're going to have our own individual dwelling place in heaven. But Jesus, when he taught about heaven, he refers to one house, not many. John 14 verse 2, famously, Jesus said, in my father's house. And I know we're so tempted to rush to the next part. But Jesus does not refer to many houses. He refers to one house. Now, the rooms in that house may be big as mansions as we compare them to earthly dwelling places. But Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. That means that the place God has for us, it is so much bigger and so much better than what we might would call luxury here on earth. But the emphasis is not about where we live individually, but it's about the Father's house that will collectively house all of God's people. We may have our own room, but we are gonna live in one big house because our father wants all his kids in the same place. Isn't it true, parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, you know exactly what that desire is like, don't you? When we're young, we're, tempted, we're anxious to move out on our own, but when we get older, we wanna have all of our family in the same place. That phrase at the end, I prepare a place for you, if that was written in Southern English, it would be y'all because it's plural. So Jesus does not say to us individually, I got a place for you. And of course that's true, but his promise here is I am pre- preparing a place for y'all because our father wants all of his kids in the same place. And he has built a house big enough for everybody. You know, I hope that you have plans to be there one day. I hope that you look forward to that version of heaven because there is no other version. There is no other reality. We are not gonna live in a country club setting on our own little corners and Jesus isn't gonna show up with milk and mail once a day to check on us. We are gonna live in the Father's house and I look forward to sharing that home with all of you one day. You know, if you're faithful to your church, you're getting a preview of what that reality is like. If you're excited about the local church, like I'm excited about it, and like many of our forerunners have been excited about it and given their lives for it, you understand that this right here prepares us for what we have above. You know, in an individualistic world, in an I world, church reminds us that our Father's kingdom is different, and it's much better for it. Church reminds us of what we share and how much we share, but also we share a lot of other things that the world reminds us of. Maybe the church doesn't instantly remind us of the same things, but I think it's not too far from this conversation because in our world, we are constantly reminded of all the things that are uncertain, we are constantly reminded of all the things that we might should be afraid of. And maybe you don't know, but did you know that Everybody shares a very specific fear. And it's this shared fear that makes our shared place together here so much more important. More important than we may realize the human race. Everybody has a shared universal fear. And you may deny it. You may say, that's not me. Somebody else might be afraid of that, but I'm not afraid of that. But there is within all of us a certain measure of fear. And some of us, it may be closer to the surface and others of us, it may be more underlying, but all of us share a fear, not just a fear, but the fear of being forgotten that there is in all of you there is in all of us, no matter what tribe, tongue, generation we're from, there is in all of us this fear, this innate fear that we might be forgotten one day. Deep down, all of us realize no matter how much we may promote ourselves, no how much we may accomplish for ourselves, we are all competing for a limited amount of recognition and attention and success. And every human has this fear, this awareness that there's a good chance we live today in our forgotten tomorrow. We may not articulate it like that, but our actions suggest this to be true. And you know what reveals this more than anything? It's the way the world markets and tries to sell its products to us. It's the way the world tries to cast its visions to us. It's this world and the powers that dominate us. They know that deep down we are afraid of missing the boat. We're afraid of being forgotten. We're afraid of falling behind. They know that and they know that we are vulnerable and they try to sell us on their product, their vision, their strategy to calm our fears and boost our confidence. If you want ultimate proof of this innate fear of being within every human, look no further than a baby. Now, as you most of you know, Lindsay and I just welcomed uh, our first baby into the world a few months ago. And, and Andrea is delightful and brilliant in every way, as long as she's getting her way, Right? Babies, uh, deep down, babies want to be the center of attention, right? And as long as she's being held and being fed, she is delightful. And she's most of the time delightful every other time as well. But I think, I think that just as babies want to be the center of attention and they'll let you know it when they're not, they will be loud and get your attention. Uh, Isn't that what all of us want? And aren't all of us just trying to get people's attention in our own way, you know, it's why we believe, behave like we do. It's why we drive what we drive. It's why we vote like we vote. It's why we build what we build. It's why we gather with whom we gather. We all want to ensure and guarantee for ourselves the best and the brightest and the most reliable world because none of us want to be left behind. None of us want to be forgotten. You know, we dress this fear up with sophisticated philosophy and beliefs when we're older, but when we're little, we don't hide it we're just jealous for and we demand all the attention lest our worst fears be realized. But this fear will come back front and center and dominate us if we get to the other side of our lives. If we get to the end of our lives and we ha- if we haven't found ourselves in Christ, if we have not found in Jesus and in his church, what is actually able to satisfy this fear, this fear will show back up when we're older and we'll be just as vulnerable as we were when we were little. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the earth to visit us, to identify with us. He came alongside humanity and he stepped into every possible avenue there was. If you read the Gospels, you find Jesus visiting the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish, the strong and the weak. He kneeled beside the disabled and he dined with the powerful. He reached out to sinners and he sat down with religious leaders. Jesus if you read the gospels he can be found everywhere with everyone he was with everybody he was where everybody else was ultimately during the last few days of his life he was found in some of the most desolate places that many doubted he would ever have to go he was surrounded and cornered by enemies in a garden he was on trial undermined by corruption and lies He was forsaken and falsely accused. He was stripped and beaten and humiliated and nailed to a Roman cross. And the last hours of his life, he was hung to die on a hill called the Skull. And theologically, there's a lot of reasons why we believe he went to that hill and he was hung on that cross, but it cannot be understated that he went to that hill to be alongside a very specific type of person, which he had not yet visited in his ministry. Rome was famous or infamous rather for crucifying people. Jesus' sentence lined up with two other men who were meeting their fate that day. Rome didn't crucify every criminal, only those considered so depraved, so dangerous, and so devoid of hope, only those that could not be trusted or useful as slaves. On the last day of his life, Jesus was determined to deserve, to, to visit this category of shame and reproach. And he would face desolation and devastation alongside two other criminals. Luke twenty-three thirty-two tells us this story. There were also two others, criminals, thieves, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to life, come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, "'If you are king of the Jews, save yourself.'" And an inscription also was written over him in Hebrew, in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, "'This is the king of the Jews.'" Then one of the criminals who was hanged, blasphemed him saying, "'If you are the Christ, save yourself and us.'" But the other answering rebuked him saying, "'Do you not even fear God?' seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So, here we're told a story of how Jesus' story intersected with two people that he should have never found himself alongside. Now, there's a reason we don't know the names of these two people because that was the whole point of Roman crucifixion. The Roman cross was all about Xing people out of existence it was about erasing people from history hundreds of thousands of people were crucified by Rome and I'd say their strategy worked for the most part because we do not know any that were crucified we know one by name and we know another by association with the one that we know by name but all the other hundreds of thousands we have forgotten them that was Rome's intent to erase them from existence. Had this man been crucified on any other day, we'd never know him, even as vaguely as we do. But because Jesus hung alongside him, we'll never forget him. You see, that was his fear, being forgotten. He knew he deserved to be canceled out and erased. He knew he was getting what he deserved. But not Jesus, who lived a life putting others first. And here on the cross, he was still doing it, forgiving people as he hung there. This thief didn't hide his fears, even if he had accepted his future. As he began losing oxygen and vision, as he began to grow more and more numb, he made one request from Jesus. It wasn't to rescue him from the cross. He knew he did not deserve that. And if Jesus wasn't going to save himself, how could he ask him to do that for him? He saw in Jesus a confidence in the face of death that nobody had ever or could ever have. Because how could you be confident in the face of being erased? But Jesus was different. Jesus must have saw a future that nobody else had ever seen, especially on their deathbed at the hands of Rome. So the man asked Jesus, when you get to where you're going, when you sit down on the throne that I'm sure you're going to receive, after I am long forgotten, will you remember me? I don't know if that's going to do any good because, we're out, because by that time I'll be gone. But the one thing we all fear the most is being forgotten. And here this man back against the cross knew he was minutes away from being erased from history. He knew he had wasted his life and Rome was about to take its eraser and vanish him from history. This man knew that once he was gone, there would be nothing else for him unless there were suffering and darkness. But maybe, maybe he thought, if Jesus remembers me, maybe wherever I am, if he remembers me, maybe that will send some spark of life through the universe. And maybe it will find my suffering soul and give me a second of relief and peace. And if that's only what happens, that will be more than I deserve. Because where I'm going there's not going to be anything good. Jesus, I don't know what's about to happen when I close my eyes for the last time, but I'm convinced. I've heard you teach. I've watched you love and heal. I hear you say, Father, forgive the very people that put you on this cross. Jesus, I know if there is a heaven, you're sitting on its throne. I know if there is an eternity, you have made an impact that is unrivaled by anyone else if there is a heaven you're gonna rule it so Jesus when you get there will you just I don't even know why I'm asking this will you just remember me because I'm about to be forgotten maybe that's what I deserve but at least I can ask remember me when you come to your kingdom Do you think for a minute he expected Jesus to say what he said next? No. Jesus responded to this man like he responds to every one of you. As we are afraid and worried and insecure and lost, he says to you and he says to me and he says to this man, You don't have to face eternity with uncertainty, you will not be forgotten. And he says to this man, I'm not just going to remember you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you to a world that you would have never dreamed of or imagined because you put faith in me being more than just a man because you recognize that in me is what the world wants so badly because you put faith in what God gave to the world. You, my friend, you may be forgotten by Rome, but you will be remembered because you are going to be redeemed. And just minutes from this man's dying wish, he opened his eyes. The first blood-bought, redeemed child of God. You see, Jesus went to that cross that day to find the most helpless and lost soul that ever had lived. And in that man, he found all of us. You see, you might identify with the lame man. You might identify with the woman at the well. You might identify with Nicodemus. You might identify with any of the people that Jesus met with. But all of us, we are in this man, scared to death that our lives might be forgotten, scared to death that our lives are wasted. And in this man, we are found. And in this man, God finds us. And on the cross, Jesus gave to this man what we all so desperately long for. In Christ, we find redemption, we find significance, we find salvation, we we find what the world wants to take from us and dispose us from. Jesus came so that we might have zero question about what the meaning of life is. And if we have a purpose and meaning in this life, he gave us the plan of salvation and the way to satisfaction. He was brave enough to stand in front of religious leaders and political leaders and say, you won't find it in them, only in me. He was confident in his father's plan that he was willing to take up a cross, believing that losing this world meant eternal gain. Jesus called people to follow him, which required unfollowing everything else. Back in Luke 9, Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone desires to follow me, deny themselves Take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and save it. He says in Luke 9, 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses and forfeits his soul? This may seem intimidating, but when you consider the reality of clinging to this world and where that gets us, the way of the cross seems more and more perfect every day because if we let go of this world we find the one promises that one promises us of a better world to come the world may makes this seem foolish as a path for us to take it makes following god seem silly and unnecessary or inconvenient even though it will offer us no relief and it will only lead us to a place of loss and devastation jesus proved that He leads to salvation and eternal life, he alone. He showed us that his way makes our earthly lives matter and serve an eternal purpose. He built his church to help us find the right path and stay on the right path and bring us together, to galvanize us together for a greater purpose. Jesus said whenever Peter confessed that he was Lord, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My church is gonna bring people from every tribe and every tongue, every walk of life and it's gonna give them an eternal significance. It's gonna invite them into a story that they may not be worthy of but I'm gonna give them an invitation into my father's kingdom. And on this rock of confessing that Jesus is Lord, the gates of hell do not stand a chance. Rome, are you listening? You can crucify everybody that you try to get your hands on. You can erase everyone you can make an attempt to, but you will not win. Jesus told the disciples, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind will be bound whatever you lose as in you have the ability and the potential to make an impact on lives to bind what may be loose to loose what may be bound you can make a difference in people's lives that you can break through to people that you thought could never be saved Jesus said this in the next chapter two chapters later For where two or three are gathered together in my name there I am in the midst. As we talked in our intro, the church reminds us to look around and look up. The Bible, the church is our only safe haven in this world when it operates the way the Bible teaches it to. When the focus is on exalting Jesus and uniting us around him and his kingdom, there's no better place to be and there's no better gathering to be a part of. You know, our invitation every single day, the way we resist the world's temptation The way we maximize our lives for God's glory, the way we can guarantee that we have an eternal impact and have value and significance far beyond this short life is by joining in with what God is doing through the church and by following Jesus that may take up a cross, but that cross that Jesus died himself on led to a resurrection that what may seem like losing in this life is gaining something for the next that is unrivaled by anything we find or put our hands on. You know there are plenty of seasons when serving God isn't easy. We may feel like there no one is noticing. The truth be told there's a lot of people who went before us that will never know what they did for God and maybe they died not knowing what it was going to amount to. The struggles they endured and faced we will never know and their faithfulness will never be recognized. We reap the benefits of works uh, of the work of hundreds of thousands of people through time that maybe not have been forgotten but they've just not been recognized obviously all the glory goes to Jesus the author and the finisher the one who started this the one who will see it to the end but there's been a lot of key players along the way that have carried that cross and we only know a few of them we know the apostles and if you're a student of church history you may know some church fathers and some other prominent leaders throughout the era we know of people like augustine of hippo we know thomas aquinas martin luther Billy Graham but don't you think there's been a few more that have made an impact on the world that have carried the cross for the glory of God at least a couple more right there are so many unsung heroes in the church even in the scriptures there's people that don't get the attention they deserve we all know Peter but it was his brother Andrew that introduced him to Jesus we all know Paul but it was Barnabas that discipled him when no one else wanted to get near him Famously, in the book of Romans, when Paul lists a very long group of people that were a part of that church, the first person he mentions in Romans 16 is a lady named Phoebe. And hardly anybody ever mentions her name. Likewise, through the years, there have been plenty of people whose names... Let's go to the next slide. Whose names we'll never know. Yet the name of Jesus was exalted because of them. And I'm sure that was the goal. I'm sure they wanted to make much of Jesus and they did not want the attention for themselves. And I'm sure their testimony was like John the Baptist in John 3:30 when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, what makes John's testimony so powerful is that John was a very famous man, a very influential man, a very powerful man in terms of the popularity that he had. History tells us, alongside the Gospels, that John was a folk hero, he had a massive following. John wasn't afraid to speak truth to those in power. He stood up for the little guy. He had hundreds of thousands of followers that rallied to his side because he spoke out against corruption and sin when nobody else would. He pointed out the hypocrisy in religion, in the religion of the day. He condemned those uh, that stood in power and demeaned those beneath them. Even people that weren't very good people loved John because John stood up for them when nobody else would. Many urged John to accept the support of people and uh, turn that into a movement that could, who knows, could have helped, you know, rescue Israel from the corruption of Rome and the religious hypocrisy of Judea. John refused this attention, though. He refused this fame. John eventually deferred all of his fame and glory. And he eventually encouraged all of his followers to unfollow him and begin following someone else. Finally, if you read the story, John closed up shop at the height of his popularity. He just quit. He closed it all. He closed it all down. He said, "I'm done. Don't follow me anymore." Eventually, he was arrested and put in jail and killed. And nobody even cared or seemed to care. John literally had the following and popularity that he could have produced an insurrection or riots. That could have installed him and in whatever office he wanted. He could have organized a spiritual movement in such a way that pocketed him boatloads of cash and privileges. But in spite of all that he could have had, John said no to it all. John saw in Jesus something worth giving it all up for. He saw in Jesus someone worth more than he could ever deserve. Jesus said of John, there's nobody greater that's ever lived than that man. You ever think about what makes somebody great? Many of us would define greatness by this world's metrics. However, Jesus took a different approach in defining it. Jesus embodied this more than even John. He was God in a body, yet he laid his life down for the sake of others. And this is what Jesus said about being great in this world. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, the people that seem to be the big and powerful people, they let you know they're great, don't they? They lord over you with their power, and they remind you they're in charge, that they control your lives, that you're dependent on them. Those that are big in this world, they lord it over you, and they exercise their authority loud and proud. But in my kingdom, it shall not be so among you. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant. If you want to be first in line in the kingdom of heaven, then you better be last in line here on earth. He turned it on his head, didn't he? And of course, he embodied this, didn't he? John the Baptist followed the example that Jesus, of course, set for all eternity. And Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom. Ransom. For many. And what proves that more than Jesus going to a cross next to a man that was about to be erased? And Jesus said, even this guy, he is why I came.